You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, church. If you do not know me, uh, I just joined on staff about six months as uh, the new student pastor. Uh, and before we begin this morning, I just want to say thank you uh, for being such a blessing not only to me, uh, but to my family, to my wife, and to our uh, son, Luke. If you are in the nursery, we thank you so much. Uh, Abby thanks you a lot. Uh, he's a pretty content kid, but we all know. We've all been there, right? So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to trust me with your students, with your kids. And so before we even begin, I just want to say thank you. I have a passion for the next generation. That's kind of why I do. Not everybody says, I want to be in student ministry. Some of us are like, I'm good. I'll serve coffee. Uh, but I have a passion, and that, didn't, that passion didn't just develop randomly. In my high school years, I had somebody in my life that walked alongside me. Not, not just one person, but many people I can look back, but specifically one. And know what he did? He didn't say, like, hey, Austin, here is three steps to loving Jesus. Do these things, and, and you're good. He invited me into his life. He, he, he modeled the gospel in his marriage. I got to see the times he messed up, and he repented. It wasn't just, I don't remember a sermon he ever gave to this day. I don't remember a small group, but I remember the way he modeled his life after Jesus. When we think discipleship, sometimes we think of a program, an event, but what we're going to look at this morning is discipleship is relational. It's not a, a three-step program. It's relational. Our main focus in the series is everything we build the houses of our hearts on, apart from the truth of Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ, will fail us. And so what we've been trying to do is clarify what does the home look like? What does a household look like? Micah has used the past couple weeks. It might be two parents, three kids, and a dog named Spot. But maybe for you, you are a single parent, and you have three kids to raise up. Maybe you are a grandparent. You no longer have kids, but you are a guardian to your grandchildren. Maybe you are married but have no kids, Maybe you are single, have no husband or wife. This series, what we're talking about today, applies to you as well. So what is this household of faith? Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The call to raise up and disciple the next generation is a responsibility to all who are in the body of Christ. Church, the spiritual well-being of the children, our teenagers, our young adults, does not just rely on our parents, 
while they are the primary disciple makers in the home, we as the body of Christ might, must come alongside them. If we truly want to live out this idea, we are a church family, right? You hear that often. What I love about this church, we, we're a church family. We need to model it in real life. Those can't be just words we say to make us feel good. We actually need to model them, put them into practice. We all have a part in raising up the next generation. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When we get to verse 4, I want you to read along with me. And when the part says, O Israel, I want you to say, O North Can Chapel. Starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O North Cane Chapel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as long as the Lord your God with all your fathers, of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O North Can Chapel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I commanded you shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Bow your heads with me. I want you to take a moment right now, church, and as we enter the presence of God, as we look at what God's word has to say about discipleship, I want to give you a moment and maybe a simple prayer that you asked this morning is, God, show me what I need to learn today. Spirit, what do I need to be encouraged in? What do I need to be corrected in? What do I need to grow in? What do I need to do? to follow you more in every aspect of my life. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come together. Thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have as a church to raise up the next generation. I pray that as we continue in your word, that you would be honored and you would be glorified and that your word would not just be words that we hear, but that we would put them to action. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. In this passage, we hear about the Shema. Maybe you've heard of it before, maybe you haven't. The Shema is a Jewish prayer that was used to educate the people of Israel about who God is and what they were called to do. It would be used to educate the next generation of the covenant of God. This was discipleship before even discipleship was even a word. The Shema they viewed as essential part of their personal life and their family's life. 
So you're probably thinking, great, okay, cool, cool little history. Can, can we get to the practical stuff? If you're like me, like, let's, let's get to the one, two, three, let's, let's figure out how we disciple. Tell me what I need to do. Here's the thing. We can't disciple the next generation. We cannot start with them. We must start with us. We often think, let's figure out how we can fix the next generation. I hear that a lot. They're messed up. They hear that day in and day out. We have this idea we need to fix when it comes to discipleship, right? When you see your husband or your wife, and they're on the couch, and they're kind of murmuring under their breath, and you see they're frustrated about something, and you're like, did I do something? And so you're like hesitant to go over, and, but you do because you're very sincere, and you'd be like, what's wrong? And after probably two minutes, they finally get to the point of what's frustrating them, what they're angry about, or the problem. And as soon as they finish, take a deep breath. Well, here's what you need to do a fix. If you did this, 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 your life would be great. Right? We often do that. I know I'm not the only one who does it. Right? Even Abby put in here, she like mentioned, say, make sure I do that as well. So it's not just the men in this room. We have that same mentality when it comes to discipleship. What do we need to do to fix that generation? Hey, generation, here is three things you need to do in order to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you only would do what I told you to do, you would be better off like my generation. When it comes to discipleship, if we really care about discipling the next generation, we cannot start with how do we fix them how do we create steps in making them love Jesus and his word? If we want to see the next generation build their life upon Jesus and his word, then it must start with us. We cannot start with them. It must start with us. You and I must cultivate a heart of awe and reverence of who God is. This is what Moses is saying by this fear of God. It's not this, uh, he's an angry God, like he might strike me from the sky but there is this awe and reverence as our creator, our savior. You and I need to cultivate that before we can even think about discipling the next generation. We can never expect the younger generation to live a faith that we ourselves are not living. One of my professors at Moody said something uh, in class. I was sitting down, and he, like, he, wasn't, he wasn't calling me out. Like, I, but I felt at that moment he kind of was. He was telling it to the whole class. But he said some words that st- has stuck with me ever since. He said this, you create the kind of disciple that you are. You create the kind of disciple you are. It has a weight to it, doesn't it? That the way you and I follow Jesus, the way that you and I model Jesus in our everyday life will be what we pass on to those after us. This is what Moses was referring to when he says that you and your son and your son's son, the life that you model to your children will not only be passed on to your children, but to their children. Parents, what are the values that you would like to see in your grandkids? I think we'd all say, like, I want them to go to church. I want them to love God. I want them to give sacrificially. I want them to serve What are the things that you would like them to pursue? 
what kind of priorities would you like to see in your grandkids? Because the kind of faith you model to your own kids will be passed on to their kids. I just want us to sit in that. Not only does your priorities now will be passed on to your kids, but to your kids' kids, and so on. Therefore, church, it is crucial that before we even talk about discipling the next generation, it must start with us pursuing Jesus with our whole self, cultivating a heart that loves him above anything else. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you know they weren't a perfect people. It doesn't take long for them, even though they were chosen and commanded to obey out of love and reverence to God, that they would not always obey. They often were forgetful people, distracted people. They were enticed by their own sinful flesh to partake in things that were in disobedience to God. So the command that we see here is being said after Israel was freed from Egypt and before they would enter the land that God promised them. And that's why he says, be careful to do them. Be careful, for he knows how prone humans are to wander off and be distracted by the flesh ever since Genesis 3. He knows the brokenness of man even though they, they've been freed, right? They were enslaved. You think they would be like, okay, I'm following and I'm obeying you for the rest of my life. But their brokenness would keep them from doing that. Distractions would be everywhere. This is why, again, he says, be careful. And the same is for us today. Is not every aspect of this world marred by the ugliness of sin? Does not this world call out to you to seek the things of the flesh and live your days in endless pursuit of fleeting happiness? Does not the world around you seek to say, follow your own heart, follow your own truth? Because that is the world our young generation lives in. I, I don't know about you, but it's kind of scary for me the things that they have to deal with, the pressures that they face day in and day out that we as a generation never really did. It's hard for them to live out their faith in their school, on their sports team, with their friends. So we as a church need to model that to them. If we are not careful, we will be like Israel when we give an ear to the distractions of this world, we will start to focus on them. And when we start to focus on them, before we know it, we are knee-deep in sin. The greatest tool our enemy has is distraction. Our enemy has no power over the power of Jesus' work on the cross. The enemy has already lost. There's no great comeback for the enemy. His fate is sealed. Our salvation is secured. But the danger is that we can be distracted from fully being obedient and cultivating a love for Jesus in our own life. And as a result, we miss out on the full and joyful life that comes from being fully devoted to Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life. If we are not careful, like Moses is warning Israel, we will fall into what was known as spiritual apathy. Our hearts can become cold, indifferent. We lose excitement to read our Bible, pray, we, we lose excitement to come to church. We rather sleep in. 
and, and so on. We often use this phrase, I hear all the time, I feel far from God. Here's the reality. We will all at one point in our lives experience that. I probably have experienced that way more times than I would like to say. Sometimes it's hard getting up on a Sunday. Sometimes it's hard obeying God's commands because there's that thing inside of me like, oh, that's, that's nice. It's crucial if, that we need to overcome this. Church, it is crucial that we overcome spiritual apathy if we want to disciple the next generation. One of the leading factors of Israel's spiritual apathy was forgetfulness. You see, spiritual apathy will always lead to forgetfulness. We lose focus on what matters according to God's word. We lose focus in seeking the things that brings us joy in Jesus. Our priorities for our own life and ultimately our family's life changes from devotion to God to devotion to self. Often these distractions are not necessarily bad. They're not all sinful or wrong. But if we're not careful, Instead of allowing our faith to dictate our daily rhythms in life, we allow our schedules to do so. We allow our schedules to decide what our family's priorities are, how we spend our time day in and day out. One of the ways we fight this church is that we get back to making God's word as essential in our lives. We must start there. It is hard work, especially when you feel indifferent when you feel like you've lost that joy in Jesus. We need to let the word of God saturate our hearts, our souls, and mind. We need to meditate it and pray on it. And out of that time in God's word, this is very important. Out of that time in God's word, we must practice a daily rhythm of repentance. When we lose the practice of repentance, what do we have to be sorry about? Sin becomes normal. And before we know it, it just becomes everyday aspect of our lives. Along with all of that, we must, as one pastor puts it, I love how he says this, fill our lives with the things that stirs our affections to Jesus. I love that, don't you? This could be worship. This could be biblical community. This could be time alone on a walk. This could be journaling. For me, it's grabbing a cup of coffee, heading to a coffee shop, and talking to people about Jesus. I've told Abby, I've told uh, everybody here, if, if I could do anything for the rest of my life, I would get up in the morning, get dressed, go to my favorite coffee shop, sit down, grab a cup of coffee, and just talk to students all day. What is it for you? Church, what is it for you that stirs your affections to Jesus? What are the things that you once found joy in, that brought you joy in Jesus? 
Do you need to get back to those things? If you are in a place today where you could say, yes, I find myself drifting from the joy that is found in Jesus, I want you to know that it is never too late to run back to the feet of Jesus. It's never too late. Don't throw in the bag. Jesus is there like in the prodigal son with his arms wide open. Come back to me. Come experience life with me. Come find joy in me. Know that there is a grace that never runs dry. God does not desire perfectionism. He desires the pursuit of holiness in our lives. As we become and seek to become like Jesus every day. This is the life that we see in the Shema. This is what was very important for God to command Israel and for Israel to command their sons and their sons' sons. This is what Jesus says in the New Testament. This is the greatest thing that you could ever do. Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is why Moses is not calling the people of God to just remember a couple, remember the Ten Commandments. He's not just saying, hey, here are three things that you can do to love me, to obey me. Why? Because we do not do because what we know is right or wrong. We do by what we love. I love Chick-fil-A. Right? I know I'm not alone. I wish there was a Chick-fil-A at every street. It would make the line a lot less. Right? Amen. But here's the thing. When I go to Chick-fil-A, I know that probably getting a salad is better for me. Maybe I'll go light on the dressing. Have you ever seen the calories of the Chick-fil-A sauce? Don't do it. I'm, I'm telling you. But here's the thing. I know that would be better for me. But what do I do? I go up. I order that spicy chicken sandwich with a large fry and an Arnold Palmer. That's a lot of calories. I do that just not because I know that's what's right or wrong. I do it because I love it. And this is what God wants for his people. This is what God wants for us. He does not want mindless people following him. But a people out of a joyful heart seek to obey him and out of love and affection, they pursue holiness and obedience. Church, we must understand that it is important to realize what we are discipling the next generation to. Moses is not saying for us to build our lives and our children's lives on just being good moral people, knowing right from wrong, but by building upon a love for Jesus as Savior and Lord and a life that is dependent on Jesus. Church, our, our focus in discipleship should not be behavior modification. Because we can fall into that. We want our kids to be good people, right? Good, good behavior is not wrong, but good behavior does not save. You can have the, the, the nicest kid who says, yes, ma'am, no, sir, and they can be far from God. This is not the discipleship that Jesus wants us to live. This is not the kind of discipleship that's be commanded here in the Shema. 
So the questions we must ask and stop, what are we discipling the next generation to? What are we discipling our children to? Are we pointing them to a reverent fear of God or are we discipling them in a way to just have behavior modification? Life is found in knowing you are broken. Life is found knowing that you cannot fix it. Life is found not just on good morals, but it is found in surrendering your life to Jesus. That is what we must teach the next generation. That's what we must teach our children and our grandchildren. That's what we must teach the students that walk through side our doors every Sunday and Wednesday. That's what we must teach over in the FLC. This is a gospel-centered life that Jesus is wanting us to take on. Not behavior modification, but a gospel-centered life. And remember, church, it starts with us. So now, we get to a little bit more of the practical part. Some of you have been itching for that. But we got to understand it starts with us. We can't model a faith and expect our, the next generation to live a faith that we ourselves are not modeling for them day in and day out. Deuteronomy 7 through 9 it paints a beautiful picture of relational discipleship. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is the Shema, that you love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you shall take them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of their house and on your gates. Moses painting a beautiful picture of relational discipleship. The method we see here is far greater than any camp, any event, any program, any class that you can send your children to. While those are, you're like, well, aren't you a student pastor? Like, isn't that the thing? Like, student ministry, you have all these events, and like, if they go to the events, somehow they'll be saved, and they'll be this perfect little angel. We laugh because it's, not always true. Listen, I, I love events. I love camp. I am so excited for Amplify. But here's the thing. Those are great environments for discipleship to happen, to be taught, the word of God to be taught. Those are great launching points, but we cannot build our faith upon those things. We cannot rely on the next camp or event to get our students on and walking alongside Jesus. Because here's the thing, when they leave their student ministry years, they will have no idea what to do in order to cultivate a love for Jesus because it was solely built on a program and event rather than what God intends here in Deuteronomy 6. It's not gonna be the next youth event. God can use that in incredible ways but what he intends discipleship to be and what discipleship should be to flourish is at the home. Church, in my few years on earth, one thing I've discovered to be very true is that God's way of doing things is always the best way. Right? If we truly believe that, we can't rely on events. 
We can't rely on ministries to just disciple our children. It must be at the home. Because in reality, they are here maybe at most, maybe two hours a week. That's kind of generous. Think about if you come every other week. But how often are they with you in the home? What I love about this way of discipleship is Moses is not really saying that you and I need to add 10 different things to our schedules. And all the parents said, amen, right? You're just like, I don't want to add another thing to my schedule. I'm already busy enough. This is why this is for you. You don't have to add 10 programs in your life. Do you have places that you can sit down at your home? Do you have a car to drive them places? Do you have a bed for them to sleep? If you said yes to any of that, there you go. This picture of relational discipleship is where you take the everyday rhythms of your family's life and that you model your everyday life, your marriage, your relationship, your work, when you eat, when you drive, when you go to the grocery store, so that they see modeled the love of God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's pretty, it's, it's really simple. And but again, it first starts with us, right? What are we modeling to them? There are a couple of things when it comes to relational discipleship that I think will help you in discipling your children and the young people here. While not an extensive list, here are three things. Discipleship of the next generation involves consistency, involves intentionality, and involves authenticity. So we're going to kind of take a moment and we're going to kind of go through those a bit. Consistency. For something to stick, it takes daily practice. Some of you know this. If you want to break a bad habit or you want to bring on a good habit, you know that in order for it to stick or go away, you can't just do it once a week. This is why we cannot rely on events and programs and camps. While they might happen every year, they only happen once a year. We might know that they're coming up, but again, it has a start date and an end date. Consistency for discipleship takes time, takes commitment, and sometimes we can be discouraged when we don't see the results that we want to see right away. Right? You're, you're pouring into that person and you're just like, wake up, can't you see this? And they're just like, no. And that can be frustrating. And often that just leads us to like, oh, I just give up. It's not worth it. Parents, church, you must be consistent when it comes to discipleship in the home. It is worth it. It is hard work. But if we want anything to stick with our young generation, we must make it on a consistent matter. Remember, becoming more like Jesus, we like to call sanctification, it takes a lifetime. You're still in it. They're still in it. I'm still in it. So maybe for consistency, you and your family, here's a little practical tip, taking 15 minutes every week 
15 minutes. If you're like, that's, that's a lot, start at five minutes. Make that consistent in your home where you open up the word of God and you talk about it. And, and you, you, you communicate it in a way of just like, I'm not just teaching you, but this is what it's also teaching me. You can't expect your children and these students to be open if you're not open to them. So 15 minutes a week, you sit down as a family. And here, here's the thing. Let your students, let your children take part in helping planning it. Make this a family matter. Make this, this is a priority, not just for us as parents, but for us as a family, as a household. One of the things I often say is, what students create, they'll maintain. Get them involved. Have them read. Ask them, hey, what do you want to learn? Is there a book of the Bible that you want to talk about? Is there a topic that we should talk about as a family? Listen to them and be consistent in your time as a family. Consistency also deepens relationship. Don't let the only time you talk about Jesus and God's word be when your child messes up. Like when they mess up, all right, here's, you messed up, here's what God's word says, how can you do this? You messed up so bad. Let's take 10 minutes and talk about God's word. That doesn't cultivate a heart for Jesus. So when, they, when you come up to them and say, hey, let's spend some time, and they're thinking, what did I do? Where did I mess up? Instead, Find ways that you can see Jesus working in their lives. And let them know about it. Don't be the only time you have spiritual conversations is when they mess up, but when you see them pursue Jesus. Hey, Billy, I am so proud of you that I I saw as I was picking you up, you and your friends were arguing, and they were saying some hurtful things, but you stood up and said, that's not right. Why? Because we're all made in the image of God. Celebrate those things. Cultivate that in your family daily rhythms. Don't just talk to your students, to your children, when they mess up. Because I think we all would agree, if that was the case for all of us, we would hate to really spend time in God's word. Right? Make it a daily practice of encouraging and pointing your kids to Christ. Be consistent in having the regular, everyday conversations at the dinner table and the driving from one activity to next. Because those normal conversations will often lead to deeper ones. Because as you start to get to know somebody, that relationship is deep and they understand they're just not after my, my faith. They love me as a person. They care for me as a person because we often don't have conversations with people that we don't really like, let's be honest. But, but someone we, we care for, that's someone that we love. Another aspect of this is let them see the consistency of your inconsistency. 
What I mean by this is, in some days, you will feel like you hit a home run. But there are going to be days where you feel like, I went 0 for 4. I messed up so bad. And here's the thing. We can often try to hide those things from our kids. And by doing so, we don't model the gospel. We model to them that we don't struggle. And so for when they struggle, man, they are just messed up. Let them see the inconsistency of your life. That when you do mess up, you stop and say, Sally, forgive me. At the end of the day, when you're eating at the dinner table, you take a moment with your family and say, hey, I did not model Christ's love to you today. I got short with you today. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's not a program. It's not an event. It's life-on-life relationships. The consistency models to them the gospel. That is what we are discipling our students, our children, our young people too. It teaches to them the seriousness of sin in our lives, that we take sin very seriously. But it also models them to the grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus. How can we expect a young generation to rely on the grace of Jesus when we do not do that as well? Let them see the work of sanctification worked out in your own life. I often hear from students that they feel like they have to perform in order to be loved and to be known. And that is not the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you do these three things and you do them well, you do them perfect, you ace that test, you're a child of mine. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you are broken. You can't fix yourself, but Jesus can. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. That is what we need to model. So when it comes to sports, grades, school, it can be easy to let the pressure of feeling like you need to be perfect in order to be loved and accepted. Let them see that God is not after their perfectionism. Let them see that God is after their holiness, their faithfulness. That when they do mess up, it's not, I can't believe you messed up. You're a mess. Because that's what they hear. I messed up, therefore, I'm a loser. Therefore, this is who I am now. No one could ever love me. I'm just a mess up. Instead of that, being in the lives of our students and our children, how can we model to them that though they are broken, they are loved by a good God? who wants them to experience life when we daily repent, when we seek him. This is the gospel-centered life that is found in the Shema. This is the gospel-centered life that he wants us to model to our children for our children to live. Second is intentionality. Now I'm talking way more than about 
getting to know their likes or dislikes. I'm talking of getting to know them as a whole self. In 2019, just one in three 18 to 35-year-old respondents shared with Barner that they often felt deeply cared for by those around them. Or that someone believed in them. 32%. Meanwhile, nearly one in four, 23%, acknowledge encountering feelings of loneliness and isolation. I would argue those numbers are probably higher today. As you peel each layer back of a person, you start to get to the heart of things like loneliness, isolation, doubt, hurt, frustration, anger, and so on. When we are intentional with someone, trust is built and relationships deepen, and what, can be, what is broken can be healed by Jesus. Again, the goal is not behavior modification, just changing the behavior on the outside. It's about heart cultivation, heart transformation. Every one of your children is probably different. When they, some mess up, and they just like, ah, it's okay. But some of your children, some of our students, when they mess up, it's not just something they did, it's something who they are. It's something inside. And we'll never get to the heart of the issue if it's just all external behavior modification. Church, if we desire to see young people walk through the doors of this church, then it starts with you being intentional. In 2011, the Fuller Institute found that by far the number one way that churches made teens feel welcomed and valued was when adults in the congregation showed interest to them. Sometimes we think we need a flashy worship service, loud music, That is not what the young generation wants. This generation craves warmth. The authors of Growing Young says, the warmth young people seek isn't usually clean and tidy. That's just fine because family isn't neat. It's messy. And messy is a good word to describe what young people want from a congregation. They want desire not only to share their own messiness, but also walk alongside the authentic messiness of others. Discipleship takes authenticity. We often can think the younger generation wants nothing to do with us. You probably hear it, okay, boomer. You probably heard that way more times than you want. We can think that. Therefore, we don't do anything. We're not intentional. But research has been done is they want you. I did a poll of our current students. I asked them on a scale of one to four, how important is it to have an adult or parent in your life to talk about your faith in Jesus, your walk in Jesus, and about everyday things? You want to know what the response was? 89% said either important or very important. That's our students. So if you hear anything, is that church, they want you to be part of their lives. 
They need you. They know it's important for them. But the problem is we can't expect them to just say, hey, come here. We need to reach out first. Not just as parents, but as the body of Christ, we need to reach out to the young generation. We can't expect them to just come to us. So I want us to close with Deuteronomy, verses 20 through 25 in chapter 6. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that our Lord, the, the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And when the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Church, the goal of our everyday conversations, the goal of discipleship, relational discipleship, is to point Jesus, our next generation, to Jesus in the gospel message. We can't do that if we're not doing what we just talked about in the home. If we're not modeling a faith to the next generation. The most important thing that you can do as a household is consistently talk about the gospel to the next generation. So when they ask why our family's priorities are a certain way, we can say, because I was a slave to brokenness, but Jesus saved me. When they ask, why do you take time out of your day to meditate on God's word, you can say, because I was a slave to brokenness, but Jesus saved me. When they ask, why don't you act out when a coworker hurt you, you can say, because I was a slave to brokenness, but Jesus saved me. Allow the young people that you interact on a daily basis to understand that because of Jesus, you have a new identity in Christ. You have a new purpose in life, and that purpose is to find fullness in him, to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Church, you got this. I know that can seem like a lot that we just talked about today, but you got this. Not because of your awesome discipleship skills, but because of the spirit within you. It doesn't rely on you. Parents, take that pressure off. You can't convince your kids to follow Jesus. Only the Spirit can. But you and I need to be faithful. You and I need to be consistent. You and I need to be authentic, intentional. So church, let us take up our cross and invite the next generation to do so alongside of us. I have a challenge for you. Often in the youth ministry world, there's this one to five ratio. One adult leader to five students. We do that because of safety, making sure like our children are secure. You know the reality is when there's one or two adults with 30 children running around, you're like, oh. But that also applies to like when it comes to small groups. We all know that the smaller the group, the better the conversation. Church, what if we flip that? What if we, as North Cane Chapel said, and you know what? We are going to provide five adults, not just parents, five adults that invest 
in one student's life. They might not, you might not be a small group leader or a student ministry volunteer. I would love to have you. We need you. But maybe this season isn't right for you. But you know what? You can say, hey, I know somebody, I know a family friend that I can invest in their life with. That their parents' voice is not the only voice that that student or child hears. That I can take them to coffee. I can show up to their sport. I can be there for them. Because they matter. What if we did that as a church? What would our church walls look like? What would our students' lives be out when we send them out? It matters. Church, you can do it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, discipleship is hard. And I know there's a lot of parents in here that are feeling the burden of raising up the next generation. That feel like they aren't enough. What they're doing is not enough. And they feel like giving up. Spirit, I pray that you would encourage them. Remind them that they on their their own cannot do discipleship. That they need the church. They need other people. And it's okay to ask for help. Thank you for saving us and giving us a new purpose in this life. Let us love the Lord our God with our heart, with our soul, with all our mind. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.